Turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 7, starting in verse 16. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 7 today. And I titled the sermon, Gideon, Mighty Warrior, Part 2. I don't know if you remember this, but the very first sermon in chapter 6, when we were first introduced to Gideon, was titled, Gideon, Mighty Warrior. Um, And so I titled this the same thing, Part 2, because what what we learn about Gideon at the beginning of 6 and what we see in our text today is kind of where what God, when God called him mighty warrior at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that come to fulfillment in this text today. So it's taken us a while to get there, but we're there. And as, we are, as you're turning there, just something that we're going we're gonna to touch on as we go through the sermon is some stuff with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 23, you probably know this, but many of you probably have this memorized of the Spirit, this is Paul writing, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we did the study on Acts, when I first started, we started in Acts, but then COVID hit, and we did like four weeks out in the parking lot, um, and maybe actually five, I, I wasn't here for that last one, before we moved inside. And I took those four weeks to break from Acts to study the Holy Spirit. We did like, it's called pneumatology, a study of the Holy Spirit. Um, One of the things we talked about was how one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring us through a process of growth to mature in us the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are the characteristics of God, and the Spirit living in us is maturing those things in us. Um, And that is very similar. I, I see a similarity between what the Spirit does in us today in our, in our lives as he indwells us to what God was doing with Gideon um, and in Gideon's heart and mind as he walked him through this process of uh, the beginning where he didn't think God was even with them to the point where we're today where he is now fighting in God's name. Um, and so this journey that Gideon goes on is a picture in the physical of what I think God does spiritually in us as he draws us close to himself. So let's look at our text, and then um, we'll pray and get into it. Verses 16 to 25, and if you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word. This is right after Gideon has heard the dream and the interpretation that Israel, by the hand of Gideon, is going to conquer Midian. Verse 16, dividing the 300 men into three companies. He packed trump, placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, All the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. 
the army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerera, and as far as the border to Abel Mahola near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers through, through the, out the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They, called or they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the text today, I'm thankful for the life of Gideon. Um, I feel like I've learned so much about him in this, in this short study that we've done so far. Um, and I've grown to appreciate much about him, um, mainly because of a surrender to you and seeing what you do through him. And it's encouraging to me uh, that if I will but let go and surrender my will over to you, um, it's encouraging that I could see you move in some powerful ways and um, in all the while drawing me closer to you. So um, teach us today through Gideon's life and what you're doing in his life and help us, God, this week to uh, take those things that we learn and to put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, the first point in your notes is Gideon's transformation. So we're going to talk a little bit about what God has done in his life to get him to this point, because he really has taken him through a process. And I, I can't help but notice that Gideon who has no wartime experience at all, becomes quite the general as the Holy Spirit empowers him and gives him wisdom and gives him grace to trust in God's promises. There are times when God is calling us to trust him, and it's difficult for us to trust him at times. Um, and it requires, like even, even the ability to trust in him and have faith in him takes grace from him. He gives us grace in order to do that, and the Holy Spirit is doing this in the life of Gideon. And I say that the Holy Spirit empowers him because our text last week told us that the Spirit came upon him. And so um, he goes from uncertainty concerning the promises of God to confidence that God is going to carry out what he said he would do. He goes from fearful, and you'll remember at the beginning he was threshing wheat in a wine press, not on a threshing floor, because the wine press would have been hidden more. And so he was trying to, it says he was trying to um, keep it hidden from the Midianites. And so he goes from fearful, where he's threshing wheat and hiding, to fearless as he takes on the greatest army in their part of the world. He goes from a person with no military experience to a master strategist. And we're going to talk a little bit about the strategy that God teaches him as he battles the, the Midianites. So God has been transforming him over this, over this process. And God is capable of transforming us 
into whatever he desires us to be. And he actually transforms us um, in a number of ways in our lives. And so one of the things he does is, um, and this is in your notes, he transforms us for service. He does a transformation in our life sometimes to bring us into a, a mindset and a heart and a willingness to serve him or serve others. By his Holy Spirit, he gives us the skills necessary to accomplish a task that he calls us to do. And he gives us a heart to, to respond to that and to serve in that way. He, um, so a couple of examples, Gideon being one of them. He transformed Gideon into this military commander. But another example that um, we could point to would be the life of Moses. Moses, um, God gave Moses the ability. He tra transformed him from somebody who didn't have an ability to speak. In fact, Moses says to God, one of his, we talked last week about Moses' excuses when God called him. One of the things he said was, I, I don't know how to speak. I'm slow of tongue. But if you, do, if, you, if you follow, you read through, or if you remember from your study of the life of Moses, he goes from somebody who struggles to speak as he's speaking with God at the burning bush to moose the process. At first, Aaron speaks for him. By the end, <coughs> when Pharaoh has been so stubborn and, so much, he, and he rejected God just blatantly, by the end of those, the plagues, Moses, through his anger because of what Pharaoh is doing, um, has no problem boldly proclaiming God's word to Pharaoh. And so God moved, transformed him from somebody who struggled even to speak to somebody who spoke with boldness before Pharaoh. So he transforms us sometimes for service. He also transforms us for our salvation transforms us for salvation. Usually when we talk about the transformation that God does in our life, we're usually talking about this, the change from the old self to the new self, the, the former self that is, that is um, done away with and put to death, and, the new, and then we become a new creation. So this is generally what we talk about when we use the word transformation. Um, because of Christ's sacrifice, and because of the Holy Spirit's work in our life as he dwells inside us, he regenerates us to be a new creation. And that then has all kinds of implications for our life moving forward. And I don't know if there's anybody in Scripture that this embodies more or, or that is a greater example of this than the Apostle Paul. He transformed Paul from a persecutor of the faithful into one who was so, like, absolutely surrendered unto the Lord Jesus. I mean, Paul's entire life was transformed, which is what Jesus is interested in doing. He didn't just come in and change Paul's thinking. He didn't just come in and, change, and soften Paul's heart. He didn't just come in and help Paul understand that he's missing the mark a little bit. He came in and he completely changed Paul from somebody who had hatred and was going to the point of even killing or having Christians killed to being absolutely surrendered to Christ to the point where he almost welcomed that kind of persecution upon himself because he felt like 
Christ died and sacrificed himself for Paul's, for Paul's salvation, Paul was willing to even share in those sufferings and lay down his own life. And so it was a complete transformation, which is what Christ wants to do. Christ, in the life of Paul, was sovereign over every single aspect of his life. And when he changes our hearts and he brings us into salvation in him, that's what he wants. He doesn't want part of our life. He doesn't want most of our life. He wants everything in our life to be surrendered to him. And so he transforms us for salvation. Now those two things, service and salvation, those are, those are kind of bigger things, things that uh, as we read through scripture, we could, we could find those things and we could say, here's an example where God transformed somebody to, be, to serve him. Here's where God transformed somebody and brought them into salvation. Those are kind of the bigger things that, trans- that God does to transform us. But he also transforms us in small ways that eventually become big changes. Because God rarely works to transform instantly like he did with Paul. Or rarely works to empower somebody. Like In the Old Testament, we see it more where he empowered somebody, they performed the task, and then he pulled his spirit out. But he doesn't, we don't see him do those kinds of things in, in our lives today as much. I'm not saying he never does. But usually he transforms us incrementally, little by little. As the Holy Spirit dwells in us, he, he does this work in us to grow us and mature us gradually into the fruit of the Spirit. I can look at, I'm, I'm 44 years old, I can look at my life when I was 20 and I was in Bible college and I thought I was mature in my faith and I thought I was serious about my faith and, um, and I can look at myself when I was at that point and I can see the stuff I didn't even know God was doing to grow me in the fruit of the Spirit that I didn't have back then or I was weak in back then. God uses every life situation, every decision that has to be made, every good relationship as well as every relationship that has tension, every success and every failure, every point of rejoicing, every point of repenting, every point of forgiving, He uses all those things over time to mature you in the fruit of the Spirit, to mature you in love and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He takes us through incrementally, little by little, as we go through all those things in life. And if you look back at your life 20, 30 years ago, you will be able to see the things that God has brought you through as he's incrementally grown you and transformed you from that person into the person you are today. Building in you, maturing in you the fruit of the Spirit, and that is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your lives. When you, can, when you can recognize God's fruit in your life, that's the evidence of the Spirit working in our lives and an indication that we belong to Christ. And so God is in the business of transforming, and what we see in Gideon is something in the physical, but we see much of that as a a small picture or maybe a symbolic picture of what God does spiritually in our lives. 
All right, point number two is Gideon's military tactics. So as we see God transform him, he transforms him into a military commander. And so I want to look a little bit at what we, what we can learn from the text here, what we see, what God is doing, and what we can learn. So Gideon, uh, and I want you to note this, like this is what, this is what God does through him as the Holy Spirit fills him and directs him, okay? Gideon, without the Spirit here, does not accomplish what he accomplishes against the Midianite army. So keep in mind as we go through these things, this is the Spirit of God guiding and directing him and empowering him. The first thing is that he's given 300 men, and so he divides them into three companies. And he spreads them out to give the appearance that they have the Midianites surrounded on three sides. Okay, so he splits the 300 men into 100 people each into three groups, sends one this way, sends one this way. There's one centrally located in between those two. And so he divides them to give this appearance they're surrounded. And this is actually a military tactic that is continued to be used as we go through the Old Testament history. Um, King Saul, not Saul the Apostle down the road, but King Saul in the Old Testament would later use this tactic against the Ammonites in 1 Samuel 11. And David used, he would use this tactic um, when his son, if you remember his son Absalom, tried to turn the Israelites against David and tried to have his father killed so he could be king. David uses this tactic against Absalom and the Israelites who followed him in 2 Samuel 18. And so Gideon, who has no military experience, as he's being led and directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, realizes we need to divide ourselves up and we need to give this appearance that we are surrounding them. Another thing that we see is that he gives every man a torch and a trumpet. You know, I would think going into battle, you'd want to give every man a sword. But Gideon gives them a torch and a trumpet. So he's got 300 men. Now, again, without the Spirit of God guiding and directing you, you don't do this. You give them a weapon or something to defend themselves, something to attack. But he gives them a torch and a trumpet. I suppose you could hit them with the trumpet and maybe burn them with the torch, but that's probably not going to be effective. The trumpets that were used were um, a ram's horn. They were called shofars. Um, it's not, it wasn't a pretty sounding. It's not something that you played to make nice music. Um, it was more just to project a loud sound that the entire army could hear. They used shofars to blow at the temple later on, if you fast forward in the timeline, at the temple at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. during when it was time for the morning and afternoon sacrifice, they would blow that and it could be heard from a long distance away. So it was not something that sounded nice. It was something that was loud so that everybody could hear it. And, and they would use that in battle so that the army could hear what they were supposed to do. But here's the strategic part of this battle plan. Only the leaders within the army would carry trumpets. 
You didn't give trumpets to every soldier. You had leaders, strategic leaders, who knew what they were supposed to be doing, who would use them to give commands to the people. So with all 300 men sounding trumpets, it would give the impression that the Israelite army was massive, at least much more massive than what it really was. And just to kind of put this into perspective for you, um, if you go back in your minds or back in, in the history to Joshua chapter uh, 6, I believe it is, where, yeah, Joshua 6, where they, the Israelites... Uh, are marching around Jericho. The, on the seventh day, they were supposed to march around seven times. And when they finished marching, the priests were supposed to blow the trumpets. And that told the people they were th to shout the, the, the thing that Joshua told them to shout, the war cry. And when Joshua did that, they had, you know, my estimation is when they came out of uh, Egypt, they probably were about two million strong. Um, when Joshua did that, you got all these people marching around the city, seven priests blew trumpets. So to put that into perspective, Joshua led his people with seven trumpets, and Gideon has 301, if you count Gideon, 301 people blowing trumpets. and so. If only leaders were the ones who sounded trumpets and you hear the sound of that many, you're going to think that there's, there's a large, massive army that is surrounding you on three sides. Okay, then the next thing is he gives the instruction, um, he instructs the men to give a war cry. Well, I guess I should maybe mention also with this one that they broke the jars so that the torches were exposed and so then they could not only hear what was going on, the sound of the trumpets and the sound of what we're going to talk about, the war cry, but also see all of the, all of the torches surrounding them as well. But okay, so then he instructs them to give a war cry. They were instructed to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So when it came time to make the surprise attack, they were supposed to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. I don't know if you've ever heard a large group of people making noise, if you've ever paid attention, if you're in a large gathering like at a concert or at a game or something like that, if you just try to like isolate yourself from everything and listen to the sound of the people, like even just normal talking is loud when you've got hundreds of people around you. There's something frightening about a large number of people yelling before they attack you. I mean, there's something frightening about one person yelling before he attacks you, but when you've got, when you're surrounded by hundreds of people and they're all screaming and you know that they're getting ready to attack you, that's pretty frightening. And I've never been in war, so I, I can only imagine from things I have heard or things I've experienced, like being in a stadium or something like that, I can only imagine what it sounded like. And I don't know if any of you are people who studied the Civil War, but um, during the Civil War, the Confederate soldiers were known to give what they called the rebel yell. 
before they attacked or as they were attacking. Um, there have been a lot of descriptions, uh, like, you know, because at that time they didn't have ways to record audio, so um, you don't have any kind of recording of it, but there have been a lot of descriptions written down about what it sounded like, kind of how it went. Um, but years later, after they developed the ability to record audio and then and even some video, there were, um, in, in the very early stages of, of film and, and audio, there were still some veterans of the Civil War alive. And I watched, I actually watched a video this past week of them, because whenever they would have gatherings, if they found somebody who was, who was a Confederate soldier who was still alive, they would ask them to give an, like just to do the rebel yell so that people could, people who weren't alive at the time could hear kind of what it was supposed to sound like. So they've demonstrated it and they've taken techno the technology that they have and they've been able to kind of, you know, if one guy does it or if they get a group of people doing it, to be able to take that and to overdub it and kind of put it together so that you've got hundreds of these voices doing the same thing. Um, and it is, like, it would be eerie to hear that if you knew they were, they were, they were coming. Um, I, I've actually read some things from Union soldiers, things that they wrote in their diaries or things that they spoke to people when they were interviewed at later times. Um, Union soldiers have said that it sent a sensation up your spine when you heard it. Uh, one Union soldier said that if you claim that you've heard it and you weren't afraid, you weren't scared, then you didn't really hear it. So it was, it was a frightening thing to hear them scream and yell and whatever it was that they did as they were charging and attacking. So can you imagine... I mean, the shout of the Israelite army, the, this was the middle of the night. The Midianites were asleep, except for the people on guard. So this is the middle of the night. So this shout awakened most of them. I think would have been intimidating to hear it. It would have been echoing through the valley. It would have been coming from all around the Midianite camp. I mean, can you imagine being awakened to that? We, we get startled if we hear a, a little faint sound in our house. And I, and I jump up and I'm like, what was that? Can you imagine coming out of a deep sleep, being awakened by this kind of, this screaming, and you open your eyes and you see, you hear the screaming from all around, you open your eyes, you see the torches all around, and you know who it is, and, and instantly your mind, you know how fast your mind works, instantly your mind calculates how many, how many trumpets you're hearing, how, where all you're hearing it from, and how big this army must be that is upon your camp. So panic and chaos ensued. So that was the third tactic. He, gave, he instructed them to give a war cry. The fourth thing, and this is the most important one here. This is the one that's most impressive to me. Gideon did not rush the enemy. So again, as a human being, if you're, if you're not being led by the Holy Spirit, in this situation, you've got them startled, 
You've got them, there's chaos uh, going on in the camp because they're awaking, they're, they're coming to be alert. They're, they don't know what's going on. They're trying to process it all. They're trying to get ready for an attack. That's the moment when you rush the enemy, you know, with the swords that you gave them um, and the shields to protect them. But remember, they don't have swords. They don't have anything to attack them with. Gideon, as the Holy Spirit works in his life and is instructing him and turning him, transforming him into this military commander, Gideon stays put. I mean, the text says in verse 21, while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. So they broke the jars, they exposed the torches, they blew the trumpets, they shouted the war cry, and then they didn't even move from their position. And God, causing confusion in the Midianite army, struck such a fear in their hearts that they, that they, started, they started killing each other, started turning on each other with their swords, they started fleeing in retreat. Gideon may have had a small army and he may have not equipped them to actually go into battle, but they didn't need to because God's plan from the beginning was for them to just do this strategy and have confusion and chaos ensue among the Midianite army. And so it wasn't until, it wasn't until much of that chaos and stuff had happened and many of them fled that then Gideon says, okay, now let's go get them. So the Midianites were surprised because they were attacked at night. They were confused. Uh, they started killing each other out of their confusion. They were scared. They fled in retreat. And Proverbs 28.1 um, is, I don't know if the author of, Pro the, of this proverb was thinking of this situation with Gideon, Gideon and the Midianites, or if this is something that he just had seen God do uh, numerous times before. But Proverbs 28.1 is describing what God has done here with the Midianite army. The wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And so Gideon has become quite the military strategist. Someone who had no military experience, and yet God, through his spirit, transformed him into this, into this leader that everybody followed. All right, third point is Gideon's effectiveness. Gideon's effectiveness. So we've seen God transform him from what he was before, hesitant, fearful, constantly needing confirmation that God was, it was God, that he is going to keep his word, transformed him into what we just read in our text today. But I want to look at how effective this was. What God had been doing in his life. Because you, you might remember from chapter 6, the early stages when he's having the conversation with God about this, Gideon goes from being what he called the weakest in his family commanding an army. Now, he says, I'm the weakest in my family. And that, that family was a part of a tribe that wasn't that influential in public affairs. Judges 6.15, he says, pardon me, my lord, 
But how can I save Israel when God tells him he needs to go and deliver Israel out of Midianite, the Midianite hands? He says, how, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. And I think, how many times do we, does God call us to do things and we doubt ourselves? Not because we should have, not because we should be overly confident in ourselves or we should be prideful that we can handle this, but we doubt ourselves to be able to do it even though God is going to equip us. God does not call us to do something and then not give us the, the skills we need to do it. And so he goes from being the weakest in his family to commanding an army of many of the tribes of Israel. And I want you to notice that he doesn't just transform Gideon. He doesn't just take this person who, who lacks confidence in himself, lacks confidence in God, who needs to be strengthened and takes this weak person and makes him a strong commander. He doesn't just do that. He also transforms the people. Gideon goes from somebody who's weak and hesitant to somebody who's bold and ready to go and confident in God's promises, and God transforms the people to follow him as their leader. And then not only did he boldly go into battle, but he routed this foreign nation that was one of the most powerful armies in the world at the time. So he, he goes from being the weakest in his family to routing this powerful, powerful nation. I've mentioned Hebrews 11. That's the chapter on the faithful. And I've mentioned how Gideon is brought up in this even though he doesn't really talk any about, uh, about anything specific. But verses 32 to 34 in Hebrews 11 say this. And what more, and so he's gone through this big list of the faithful and what they've done, and, and then he says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Now, he mentions Gideon along with some other people. And so, and then he gives this big long, this list of things that they did. And so some of these could be attributed to more than one person in there. And certainly some of these things are, are you can look at Gideon's situation and you could say, yeah, Gideon did that. But this last one is the one that I really want you to focus on whose weakness, remember he was somebody who doubted everything, whose weakness was turned to strength, so God's done this transformation and brought him to this point where he's bold in battle, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. That one, for sure, can be pinned on Gideon. That might be true for some of the others as well. We talked about that being the situation with Barak as well. But Gideon, for sure, was a person who was weak, who had become strong through the work of the Spirit in his life, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. So my question then is, as we talk about Gideon's effectiveness, I mean, God obviously accomplished a goal here. But why was he effective? 
Does Gideon accomplish any of this without God empowering him by the filling of his filling him with the Spirit? I don't know that Gideon accomplishes anything that we talked about in, our, in the text today, because he was so fearful at the beginning, hesitant, questioning God every step of the way, asking God to prove himself again and again and again. I don't know that Gideon does anything without God's spirit upon him. And then after he decides, okay, we'll, we'll do this, God gives him an army and he takes 32,000 soldiers and he whittles it down to 300. And at that point, I think I would probably be tempted to say, okay, I think I'm done. I don't think I can do this. But Gideon has been transformed as God has been working in his life. And because of the work of the Spirit in him, Gideon is able to do these things, go from weakness to strength, become powerful in battle, and routing one of the most powerful armies of the day. And I want you to see this. This is, this is why. Because Gideon let go, and he allowed God to take complete control and then he followed in obedience. It's one thing to trust God. This, is, this would probably be me. I trust that God is calling me to do this, that God's going to be with us. Now I'm going to go with all my wisdom and all my physical strength and my ability to lead a group of people, and we're going to go in and, we're gonna, and God's going to do this for us. Gideon didn't do that. Gideon let go, and he allowed God to have complete control and he followed God in obedience. And we know that because he did not rush the army. When he had the opportunity, he stayed back because that was not, the instruction was not to go rush the camp. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to try to control things. I'm a little bit of a control freak. Um, it might even border might might even be borderline manipulating a situation in my favor instead of just allowing God and trusting God to do what he's promised allowing God to prove to me that he's in control that he's working in a way that gives him glory and in a way that's for my good so i don't know about you that's my tendency um, that is not what Gideon does here that might have been Gideon that might have been the tendency of some people, probably not Gideon because he was hesitant, but some people in the Bible, we might have seen people who are more like that. The tendency would be to take control and try to do it in their own strength. But Gideon is not that person, and because of that, God completely um, throws the Midianite camp into confusion, and then they are susceptible to the Israelites coming in, even with a small group of people, and conquering them. All right. As we, let me wrap up here. As we look at Gideon's journey, again, it's a picture in the physical of what I think God does spiritually as he draws us closer to himself. So if you look at the comparisons of what went on here and what we deal with in life today, Gideon and the Israelites were enslaved to Midian, and we were all enslaved to sin at one point. If we have given our life to Christ, we are no longer enslaved to sin, but 
If we haven't, we are still enslaved to it today. So they were enslaved physically, we were enslaved spiritually. Accomplishing deliverance from Midian was too great a task for Gideon to be able to do by himself. Just like for us, accomplishing deliverance from sin is too great a task for us. We are incapable of being able to do that for ourselves. God promised to deliver Israel through the hand of Gideon, and Gideon, through this process, had to learn to trust God. God promised deliverance for us from the bondage of sin and we had to learn to trust him and, and let go and allow him to become Lord and Savior of our lives. And so there is this picture, this small picture of the bigger picture or this physical picture of the spiritual picture that we see in what God was doing in the life of Gideon um, and what he does in the life of every human being. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that picture, that symbolism, the, the image that we're able to see, something in the physical which is easier for us to process, but it shows us what, was, what you've been doing and are doing still in the spiritual, in the lives of people. And we're thankful that you are doing that work. And even for those of us who have been saved and delivered from the bondage of sin, the work does not stop. You continue to mature us in the fruit of the Spirit. You continue to transform us into more into your image. And you continue, God, to draw us close, closer to your heart in an intimate relationship. And so, thank you for giving us something that maybe we can process a little bit more in our minds to see something that's a little bit more difficult to process in our minds. And thank you for the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, but that all the days of our lives, of our life, we know that we walk with you. You're right there by us. You're guiding and directing us through your Holy Spirit that's indwelling and that you're moving us forward to the time every day is a, a, another step closer to the time that we will be able to leave the physical and all of the all of the sin and brokenness of this world and be with you for all eternity. Let us go from this place today and be people that are transformed, be people that you are still transforming, and be people who live as those who are saved. In Jesus' name.